she is one of the wealthiest women in the United States. Not only did she lead a hit talk show for a quarter of a century, but today she also runs a media and business empire. She has her own magazine. She's received the Presidential Medal of Freedom, and she has her own grocery line of frozen foods called Oh, That's Good. I am, of course, talking about none other than Oprah Winfrey. Through her influence and talk show and sheer numbers, she arguably became one of the leading spiritual voices in America. Reflecting on her life and her purpose and her influence, Oprah once wrote these words, quote, Claiming my own spiritual depths and encouraging others to recognize the fullness of their potential through spiritual connection is my greatest purpose and calling. So Oprah's purpose, in her own words, is to help people live more spiritual lives, to have spiritual connection with others. Well, what makes someone spiritual? During a segment of one of her TV shows, she sits across from a mystic guru. You can picture this scene. He's dressed in a yellow sweater, and he says with a sophisticated accent, quote, if there is no space in you, if there's no spaciousness, then you haven't yet touched the spiritual dimension. Mm. Oprah sits back in her chair. She has this thoughtful, profound expression. She's hanging on every word, and we continue to hear how to live spiritual lives. He continues, be conscious of being conscious. You have to experience what that is to know what that means. Look at a flower and you are conscious of the image. You live in two worlds at the same time, and suddenly there is a vast but intensely alive peace because being conscious of being conscious is very peaceful. It's profound. And Oprah and her audience and the world as a whole eats this stuff Following Jesus and believing his word may not be on trend, but being spiritual certainly is. We live at a time when many are interested in reaching enlightenment and reaching another plane of spiritual existence. And this is supposedly done through everything from physical poses and breathing to medication and, and even various substances. So with so much interest in spiritual living and connection, it's important we ask ourselves the question, what marks a genuinely spiritual person? What are the marks of a spiritual life? What characterizes spiritual living in your life and in the life of this church? And with those questions in mind, we come to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12 is the Mount Everest of the entire Bible. It is the most in-depth, vast, glorious explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that has ever been put to paper. And the chapter we're coming to this morning begins in Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So the, the banner flying over Romans 12 is live a spiritual life. 
offer your life as an act of worship, a spiritual service unto the Lord. And as we come to Romans 12, 9, Paul is answering the question, what does that look like? What, what guides your life? What is part of who you are if we live genuinely spiritual lives? Romans 12, verses 9 through 13, is a gold mine of application. It is full of gems and riches for our lives and is essential for us to put into practice as we are to live spiritual lives that glorify God. So genuine spiritual living is not mystical. It is not flashy. You could summarize what spiritual living and this short section of Romans 12, verses 9 through 13, is all about in one word. This word always marks genuine spiritual servants. This word is one we hear about often, even though we struggle to put it into practice, and it's a word our world uses all the time, even though it has no idea what it means. And that one word is this. Love. Love. Romans 12, 9 through 13 gives us 13 short statements. They read almost like Proverbs, and at face value, they seem random and they seem disconnected. But when you look at them collectively, we see that these verses, these five verses, form a blueprint. They form a schematic of what biblical love looks like as spiritual worship in your life and in the life of the church. And it touches every area. Of our lives. So look at Romans 12, beginning in verse 9. God's perfect and inerrant word says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Think of these 13 statements like spices. If you look at a recipe and you only use one of the spices in the recipe, it overpowers everything else. It's not balanced. But when you have all the ingredients, all the spices together, and you cook something properly, it has this, this meal that has a rich flavor an aroma to it. And in the same way, when all 13 of these are present, there is a flavor and an aroma of love in the life of the church. So as we work through this, we're going to group some of these statements together over the next three weeks. And so I want to give you them all up front so that you know where we're going. Over the next three weeks, we will consider how love impacts seven areas of your life so that you will love others rightly for the glory of God. So here's all seven, and then we will only cover the first three this morning. First, love and your salvation. Second, love and your sincerity. Third, love and your sin. Love and your siblings. Love and your spirit. Love and your suffering. And then finally, we will see love and your stuff. And we begin with the first one, love and your salvation. Look at verse 9. He begins, let love. Okay, already pause. Paul is about to launch into a practical description of what love looks like. But for us to truly grasp that and apply it, before we get there, let's begin with an even more basic question. Where does love come from? 
What is its source? And the answer to that question is in part found even in the way that Romans as a book is structured and the way it's put together. So if you want a very simple outline for the book of Romans, here it is. And this is not original to me. This is commentators have known this and noticed this for for years. Romans 1 through 11 is the gospel defined. Romans 12 through 16 is the gospel applied. So first, he defines what the gospel is, and then he shows us how to apply it in our lives. We cannot live out the application in chapters 12 through 16 if we have not first been changed by the gospel found in chapters 1 through 11. You cannot apply what God says about love if you have not first been changed by the love he has shown in the work of Christ. So before we parachute into the application of Romans 12, we're going to quickly walk through Romans 1 through 11. How has Paul spoken about love up to this point in the book of Romans? So turn with me to Romans chapter 1, and we're going to fly through Romans together at about 30,000 feet. In Romans 1 verses 1 through 17, Paul defines what the gospel is. So look in your copy of God's word at Romans 1 verse 16. Romans 1:16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written the righteous shall live by faith The gospel is the good news that Jesus is Lord that God came as a man in the person of Jesus Christ and that we have rebelled against his rule with our sin and that he died on the cross atoning for our sin, he rose from the dead, and that everyone who believes is saved not by human works but by sheer divine grace. We are gifted God's righteousness by faith alone. And that sounds so basic, but I want to start here because over the next few weeks, we are going to focus greatly on good works, on what we should do. And these works only grow out of the soil of the gospel. That is where it begins. Works naturally and necessarily flow out of a heart that has experienced salvation, but they do not cause salvation. So then in Romans 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul emphasizes who the gospel is for. So who needs salvation? Who needs to experience God's love? Who should believe the gospel and submit to Jesus Christ as Lord? Answer, everyone. It is for everyone. Everyone needs the gospel because everyone has sinned against God. The default state of the human race, including you, and I is not that we have a right standing before God. It is that we are, in, we are alienated from him and under his wrath. Why? We'll look at Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. Romans 3, beginning in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands and no one seeks for God. He says at the end of verse 12, look at the end of verse 12, no one does good, not even one. So a question leaps off the pages of Romans to every one of us. A fundamental question you must ask yourself to truly understand your need for the gospel. 
Are you good before God? Are you righteous like God? The question is not, are you nice? Are you friendly? Are you generous with your finances? Are you liked by others? The question is, are you perfect like God? Are you good like God? And Jesus comes to save not the self-righteous, but the unworthy, the sick, the sinful. How many times have you sung these words? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch. That word is not an exaggeration. That's not us just using hyperbole when we sing. Wretch is exactly right. Because in our sin, we are wretches. You, me, the person you're sitting next to right now in church, we are the wretches the song refers to because of our sin. But he saved. He demonstrated his love to a wretch like me. In our sin, we cannot somehow will ourselves into loving God and loving others. We need to be changed. To live out Romans 12 to God's glory, we need God to do something for us, to do something to us. And that leads Paul to write Romans 3, verses 21 through Romans chapter 5. So come with me to Romans chapter 5, verse 5. Romans 5, Paul asks the question, or he's addressing, how do we rejoice in our suffering? What is the point of suffering? And it helps us endure. It produces hope. And then Romans 5 and verse 5 says, And hope does not put to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Jump down to verse 8. Romans 5 verse 8. But God shows his love, his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Love begins with God. Love is not in us because we first love him. It is because he first loves us. And he comes to us And to believers, Christ becomes not only the source of our love, but our ultimate example of what this love looks like. Believer, remember what Paul says in Ephesians 5, verse 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So in Christ, we see that genuine love is sacrificial. It it serves, it commits to the well-being of others. And to those who trust in this loving Savior and are justified or declared righteous by God, through the Holy Spirit, God pours his love into the hearts of his people. So, are you in Christ this morning? And if you are, you've heard this a thousand times. But just fix your mind once more on this glorious truth. Christian, he lived for you. And he died for you. And he declared victory when he rose from the dead on your behalf. And he demonstrated his unfathomable love to you. And at some point in your life, he changed you. He called you by name. He justified you because of his love. Not because you are good. Not because you are awesome. Not because you are better. Not because you are worthy. But because you aren't. 
he demonstrates his love. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, if you're not a believer, I'm sure God has you here with us this morning for many reasons, but I know that one of the reasons God has you here, if you do not know Jesus, is for you to hear me say this. Today, you can be saved. Cling to Christ, forsake your sin, turn to Jesus Christ, confess him as Lord, run to him by faith, and you will know love like you never have before. Today is the day of salvation, to experience the love of God. And for those who believe, for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, Romans 6 through 8 declares, God will complete the work he begins. Romans 8, go to Romans chapter 8. Paul asks this question in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Can anything separate us from his love? And Paul answers in Romans 8, beginning in verse 38. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, because the gospel is his work, Because salvation is his work, he gets everyone he saves from point A to point B. He completes the work. Yes, we wrestle with sin. We we are not perfect, but we are enabled by God and by his spirit to set our minds, not on the flesh, but on him. Which means obedience to God, including love, will flow out of our hearts. God does this to his people We are works in progress, but we are his work, which means the work will be completed. And in Romans 9 through 11, Paul drills home again that this is God's work. God is the origin of the gospel. He is the origin of the salvation of his people, so he gets all the glory. Salvation is primarily about God. It is his idea. It is centered on him sending his son to save and redeem a people through his spirit because he loved them and chose them before the foundation of the world. So Paul declares in Romans 11 verse 36, go to Romans 11 verse 36, because of the work of Christ, because salvation is about him, because he's demonstrated his love and sending his son to die for us, all of this Verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And on top of this colossal structure, this megalith of the gospel comes Romans 12 through 16. So this gospel message doesn't just change how you relate to God. It changes how you relate to everything. It changes how you relate to everyone. God delights in taking slaves of sin, saving them, and forming them into his spiritual servants. And this is where Christian love begins. Salvation. So with every one of those bricks laid, we are now ready to consider our second heading, second, love and your sincerity. Love and your sincerity. Romans 12 verse 9 is made up of these three short commands. And here is the first one, and it sets the tone for all the others that are coming. Let love be genuine. So this love is is not a unique spiritual gift only given to a few. Maybe you've heard somebody say, or you've heard somebody say to you, or you've said to somebody, I'm just not a loving person. Love is not a personality type. 
It is a fruit of the Spirit that grows in the heart of every genuine believer. Galatians 5, verse 22, love is the first fruit of the Spirit. So the beginning of Romans 12, 9 is a call to all believers to focus on others, to to sacrificially show authentic affection and care for others. And he qualifies the statement in verse 9 this way, let love be genuine. Now, the word genuine in Greek is helpful to us. So I'm going to say it out loud, and I want you to listen for an English word, if you hear anything that sounds familiar. Our love must be genuine. Here's the word. It's without hypocrites. Hear anything? Hypocrites. Hypocrite. Let love be without hypocrisy. The NASB translates it that way. Let love be without hypocrisy. Now, in the first century, the word hypocrite was used to describe actors. Those who would pretend for a period of time to be what they were not. So when I was younger, I do not have a lot of acting experience, but I have a little bit. So when I was younger, I would have these parts in church plays. And in one of the plays, I played a role that I really don't want to act like in real life. Satan. Yeah, I played Satan. So the church had me dress all in red and spiked my hair, which I had back then, but they spiked my hair and dyed it red. If you can picture me with me with red dyed hair. And I acted. I pretended. I was a hypocrite, to use the first century word. In other words, when we love, we shouldn't be play-acting just going through the motions. And it is so easy to do that in day-to-day life, is it not? Why does God command us, let love be genuine? Because at times, our love can be tainted with hypocrisy. Hypocrisy occurs when a person pretends to be what they are not. In our lives, this is when our external actions, what we do, does not match our internal attitudes, So in Matthew 23, Jesus compares hypocrisy to a cup. Kids, picture this with me. Imagine that you have a cup, and it's a really nice cup on the outside. And you you take it outside, and you fill it with mud and bugs, worms, filth. And then you clean it up so it looks really nice, and then you take it to your brother or sister or your friend, and you say, look, here's a clean cup of water. And if they drink it, what are they going to do? Right? They're going to spit it out because what it looks like, what you implied it was, is not what it is on the inside, what's in the cup. Jesus says, don't love that way. Don't make the cup look shiny while what's inside is dirt and worms and sin and hypocrisy. In Matthew 6, 1, Jesus teaches us, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Beware of practicing your love just to look good. Beware of practicing your love just to stand out in front of others, serving just to be noticed, longing for people to see you instead of longing for them to glorify God and for you to glorify God and to love them. Genuine, sincere love is like the love of a, of a parent to a newborn. The love parents experience toward their newborn is beyond words. You, you can't even describe it. And, and yet, think about it. Does the baby do anything for them? Not unless you count throwing up on you and robbing you of sleep Does the baby praise his or her parents? Does the baby express appreciation every time the parent literally keeps them alive? 
maybe later, but not in that stage. And yet in that relationship, there is this beautiful picture of sincere love. A love that is genuinely, with every fiber of the parent's being, concerned with caring for another, without getting anything back in return. What God wants for us is not just to act the right way, but to do it with the right heart. To do it from a place of sincere, genuine love for God and for one another. So so let's think about what might hypocritical love look like? Or what might sincere love look like? And this is so subtle. So imagine you're talking to a fellow believer. And they share with you uh, a struggle they're going through, a trial, and you're talking. And then at the end of the conversation, you say, thank you for telling me. I'll be praying for you. Really, though? Is that your intent? To, To pray For them, I mean, do you write it down? Do you make a note of it? Sometimes I'll pray for you is Christian code for, I'm not sure I'll actually pray for you, but I need a polite way to move on from this conversation. So I'll pray for you, and then we move on from there. Or maybe you do have every intention to pray, but you just don't take the steps to keep that commitment that you just made. It's just saying what makes you sound loving in the moment, even if there's no intent in your heart to follow through. It doesn't feel very sincere, does it? It doesn't feel very genuine. Why? Because the promise to pray is more about looking a certain way to the person than it is your desire to express love for God and for them through prayer. Hypocritical love often says what feels like the right thing in the moment, but has no intention of following through. That's hypocritical love. But let's look at the same situation from a different angle. If a believer says to you, I'll pray for you, and then a few weeks later they come back to you and they say, hey, I've been praying for you. How's that going? How can I encourage you? Is there any way I can continue to pray? That's so encouraging, isn't it? Why? Because you know they weren't just saying something. They weren't making an empty commitment. They they genuinely cared about me. They weren't just checking a box. That's genuine, sincere love. If you think about it, hypocrisy and love are polar opposites. They're oil and water. Hypocrisy is all about me. It's about how I look. It's about what I do. It's about how I come off and present myself to others. Genuine love, on the other hand, is all about others. So practically, just think about how many opportunities you have to show sincere love just on a Sunday morning. And the way that you arrive, showing sincere love to those that you greet as you come in. Showing sincere love to those around you, where you sit in a pew, and how you serve, and whatever ministry that you're a part of. Even in something as small, parents, and how you pick up your children at the end of the service. Show genuine love. And how do you diagnose if your love is genuine or if it's tainted by hypocrisy? Well, just ask yourself, are you doing the act of love for the glory of God or to be noticed? Are you focused on serving others? And if you are, as you serve others, are you thrilled when they approve but deflated if they don't? Could be a sign that your love is tainted with a lack of sincerity. And as we allow Romans 12, 9, to instruct our hearts, please don't leave here merely asking yourself, so what do I do? What external love actions do I take? Instead, yes, ask those questions, but more than that, ask, is my love genuine? 
Is it sincere? And this is something I want to give God glory for before we move on in this church. When, when I first came to Christ Fellowship, I visited for the first time without Kristen. She was back home with our kids. And so I was here for a few days, and I met many of you and, and got to preach and do various things. And after being here, it's for a few days, one of the first things Kristen asked me is, what is the church like? And one of the first things I told her is, this church loves. It just, it permeates the people here. And I praise God for that. That's God's grace. That's his spirit at work. And would it continue? And would we excel still more as we love one another genuinely? It's love and your sincerity. And third, love and your sin. Love and your sin. Verse 9 continues. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. That's an incredibly practical way for you to approach sin in your life. We, we can get really complicated with techniques and, and various things, but whatever the sin is in your life, here's how God wants you to handle it. Abhor sin, hold fast to good. Abhor means exactly what you think. It means hate. Find repugnant. Spiritual living involves genuine love and God-honoring hate for our sin. Evil is a junk drawer term. It's sin, wickedness, immorality. It's rebellion against God. It is pride to pornography and everything in between. And the more we grow to be like God, the more we hate sin in our lives. This is a unique mark of those who genuinely love the Lord. Psalm 119, verse 104. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Psalm 97.10, oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. Christian, God is not merely calling you to not sin. That's not all that God is saying here. This is not an encouragement to have more willpower, to just grit your teeth. And even though you really, really want to sin, you just try your best to avoid it, even though deep down that's all you want. That's not what it's saying. The word abhor conveys what John Piper calls inner intensity. It's inner intensity. It's an internal reaction against our lives. Going back to the cup example, it's like when you take a bite of food or a drink and you expect it to taste fresh and delicious, but as soon as the rotten food tastes, hits your taste buds, you immediately know it's rotten, it's bad, you abhor it, you spit it out, you want nothing to do with it. Now, at first glance... As I was studying this, and maybe you this morning are thinking, it seems random that command is there. I mean, the beginning of verse 9 is about loving others. The beginning of verse 10 says, love one another with brotherly affection. So that's clearly about loving others. But then sandwiched in between is this seemingly random command about abhorring what is evil. Why is this here? Why in Romans 12 is this here right after a command to love others? Why is hatred of evil an expression of genuine love for others? Well, have you ever thought about this? How you approach sin in your life is an expression of your love for others or lack of it. Your sin is not just your business. 
Your sin is not just about what you do in the privacy of your home. What you do in the privacy of your home, be it pursuing God or pursuing sin, impacts and influences those sitting around you in this church and in your life. The deceitfulness of sin whispers to you, it's private. It's isolated. No one will ever know. This is just you and your sin. No one else has to be involved Sin in our lives has no impact on those around us. That is always a lie. Sin is always selfish. It always harms others. Doesn't 1 Corinthians 5, 6 say that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? It grows. It multiplies. It gets into the lives of others. The sin you love privately impacts those you gather with publicly. Your sin is not just about you. That is why hating your sin is an expression of your love both for God and for others. Listen to 1 Corinthians 13, 6. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Biblical love is always guided by truth and is never passive or indifferent toward wrongdoing or evil in our lives. So do you love God? Do you love others? Well, what is your relationship with sin? Are you entertained by it? Do you laugh at it? Are you indifferent to it? Have you grown too comfortable with certain sins in your life? Our culture has convinced us sin is just primarily private. It's not abhor what is evil as an expression of love for God and love for others. And one more note here before we move on. How do you apply this if you're interacting with an unbeliever who is caught up in a sin you find particularly abhorrent, that you just really struggle with? Romans 12.9 calls us as believers to abhor sin, not people. Love walks this tightrope. We loathe sin and we love people. We do both. The world insists that to love we must approve. That's a lie. Biblical love never approves of sin. It never affirms a person in their sin. Why? Because genuine love longs for them to be set free from sin and to embrace Christ to know his love just as Christ freed us from our sin. And toward that end, we love those who are in bondage to the deceptions of Satan and their flesh. And this is really hard because at times you might think, but, but that person hates me. That person wants to take my freedoms away. Here's one that I think of often, but that person's evil is harming others. And you know what? That's probably true. That's why we abhor evil. That's why we oppose ungodly agendas and we stand firmly for truth. And as we do that, would we have the aroma and the seasoning of love? Would we live out what Paul says just a couple verses later in Romans 12, 4? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Colossians 4, 5, and 6 gives us wisdom in how to do this. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. 
and we can do no better than to fix our eyes on our Savior, who, according to John 1, verse 14, was full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. Jesus embodied two aspects of love that need to go hand in hand in your life. Jesus was always radically gracious. And he was always uncompromisingly true. That is biblical love. So as an expression of your love for God and others, hate your sin. And as an expression of your love for God and others, the end of verse says, the end of verse 9 says, hold fast to what is good. Hold fast is a, is a helpful picture for us. You ever go to the beach and you get in the water and then when you get out of the water, you're walking in the sand and then what happens? The sand sticks to you, right? It gets all over everything. That, that's the word used here. It's used of dirt sticking to people who are walking. It, it's holding fast. It's clinging to. That, that's the, the picture. In Matthew 19, verse 5, this word is used of marriage. A husband holds fast or clings to his wife. So in the same way a couple commits to hold fast to one another at a wedding, a Christian is one who commits to God. I will hold fast. I will hold tightly. I will cling to what is good. And this is something we must do every day. It's intentional. Christian, glue yourself to what is good. And who gets to define that? Not you. Not, not the world around us. Not this current cultural moment. Look at Romans 12 verse 2. Romans 12 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. To love rightly, cling to what God defines as good in his word. Know his word. Delight in his word. Glue yourself to his word. Abhorring evil and clinging to good go hand in hand. The greatest evil in your life is your sin. And the greatest good in your life is God. Abhor the one. Hold fast to the other. So here is a simple guiding principle to help us identify what do we turn away from, what do we abhor, and then what do we hold fast to. Well, just ask yourself questions like, does that choice, that thought, that way you spend your time, lead you away from Christ or toward him? Does it diminish God or uplift him? Is it something that you know does not please him, or is it something that you can receive and enjoy for his glory as an, as an expression of your love for God and others? Don't just hate evil. Hold tightly to what is good. God is deeply concerned that his people live as genuine spiritual servants. Oprah actually got one thing right. Spiritual living is key. Just has nothing to do with staring at flowers. It's not found in being conscious of being conscious. It is found in this love. Love that overflows from a heart that has personally experienced the love of God demonstrated in Jesus Christ. Love that is genuine. Love that drives you to hate your sin and to love your Savior. So love others sincerely. Hate your sin relentlessly and hold fast to what God says is good diligently. 
And as we think about how else does love work itself out in our lives and in the lives of the church, we'll continue to answer that question next week. Let's pray. Lord, your love is overwhelming. It is vast, far vaster than we could ever comprehend. And Paul asks us, will anything separate us from your love? And the answer through the work of Christ is a resounding no. So we give you glory that you have poured your spirit into our hearts. I thank you for how love just comes out of the people here. We are encouraged by how your spirit is at work. And Lord, help us still more to love others sincerely, to not just love in a way that looks good, but in a, in a way that comes out of a heart that longs for the, what is best for others and that longs to glorify Christ. Lord, help us by your spirit to hate our sin, to when we're alone and we think that it's just us and our temptation to remember that we are to love you and to love others always. Help us to hold fast to what is good, to the glory of Christ. And it's in his name I pray, amen.